We're talking about how to harness consciousness to change the pathway of life on Earth. Welcome to A Voices of Esalen Extended Edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today's episode is part of a series of panels presented at the 9th Annual Blue Mind Summit at the Esalen Institute in the summer of 2019, where the topic at hand was blue mindfulness and water's positive impact on our emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. Representing the mind in blue mindfulness is Dr. Dan Siegel, clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. An award-winning educator, Dr. Siegel is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association as well as the executive director of the Mindsight Institute an educational organization that focuses on how the development of mindsight in individuals, families, and communities can be enhanced by examining the interface of human relationships and basic biological processes. Dr. Siegel's unique ability to make complicated scientific concepts exciting and accessible makes him an entertaining and useful resource. Here's his keynote address at the 9th Annual Blue Mind Summit. You live in a body which has this kind of fixed thing to it, like here's a body. You know on a calendar you get about 100 years to live. This body's going to grow up, get to a certain maturity, then start to fall apart and then die. I, don't hope, I hope I'm not shocking anyone. Um, but this is what happens. And it's all a bunch of noun stuff. When in fact, scientifically, if you look at the nature of reality things are actually really more like verbs. So we nounify life and freak out about it instead of sort of relaxing into the verb-like dynamic event quality of things. And this is true whether you're looking at it from a biological point of view, we could see why the human body does that kind of nounifying and feeling like they're separate, like there's a separate person here and there's a separate person here and there's a separate person here and we have 130 people who are separate beings. But it's kind of like the forest. Have any of you been to the Pando Populous Forest in Utah? Well, it's in Utah. There's 57,000 quaking aspen trees. And then when you go just six inches beneath the surface, you find one root ball. And when you test the DNA, it's the same tree. It's amongst the oldest and largest living things on Earth. But on the surface, things look like they're separate. So that's what I mean by nounifying. You get this feeling like there's separate trees when there's a whole process of life going on just beneath the surface. I think one of the proposals I'll just put out there as a conclusion now we can start with as a possibility is that water, unlike the air world we live in, in water, everything is interconnected. Things are floating around. And you can see this transparent, verb-like substance that you don't really see, but you live in and you float. And that part of, at least when I think about my relationship with the ocean or bodies of water, it's so verb-like. Like the first time I was struggling with this crazy thing of being a psychotherapist and people said, well, we're, you know, you're a mind therapist. And everyone was saying it was the brain. I went to the ocean to try to understand things. And... If you look out at the waves, right, from like 100 yards away, and then this wave is coming at you, it's 50 yards away, and then it's 25 yards away, and then it's 10 yards away, and then it's five yards away, and then it crashes on your feet. What did you actually just see? You saw energy, right? You didn't see the noun of a molecule of water, you know, marching its way toward you. You saw an energy wave. 
the, the, the molecules that crashed at your feet were not the molecules you saw out there. What you actually saw was the manifestation of an energy wave. And when you start thinking that way, that's a verb. How many of you know that science has proven that in the one reality we live in, there are two realms with profoundly distinct mathematical equations that demonstrate how that realm operates? Two very distinct realms. How many know that? These two realms are known realms where we know the equations, and the equations are extremely accurate predicting how that realm operates. So it's not like this is a hypothesis. There's enough data that people say this is how it is. One realm, things act like entities. They act like nouns. And the other realm, they act like events. They act like verbs. I think water drops us into the experience of what that hub is, which is more this realm of verb-like event unfoldings rather than the illusion of a noun-like entity. So the two realms are, one is like the realm of your body or a bicycle or a car or something. They're big objects, so it's called the macro-state realm. And Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, figured out how these things operated and he was absolutely accurate. He could predict the location, as he said, of, of planets and moons because they're big objects. He didn't know there were small objects, but these were big objects. So that's Newtonian, also called classical physics, also called macrostates. And in the macrostate world, things are noun-like. They're noun-like entities that have the appearance of separation. And there's something called an arrow of time, which is directionality of change. If we crack an egg, you can't uncrack an egg because it's a macro state. But once you get to pure energy, which is called a probability field, like an electron or a photon, Newtonian laws don't apply at all. And no one can find at the small level micro states, which is called quantum. A quanta is a unit of energy, which is a probability field. You can't find any nouns. And there's no arrow of time. And probably what we call time is our awareness of change. So I just want to start this weekend together to suggest that what water does is drop our macrostate Newtonian noun-like lives into the fluidity of a quantum verb-like unfolding. And pure awareness is rejoiced to finally get into a realm, the water realm, that has this experience of what reality is truly about with pure awareness. <laughs> with blue mind and the idea of blue mindfulness, and you may all be feeling this anyway, there is this moment in our evolution as life on Earth where human beings are shaping not just climate, but the very nature of the topography. And so it's called the Anthropocene era, the era of humanity. Now that sounds kind of nice and fancy, but it's actually not so nice and fancy when you realize that what we're doing is not so helpful for life on Earth. So a part of um, what we've been talking about is biological evolution, that is the changing in our genes, which com are comprised by the DNA that makes up our chromosomes. Um, but that kind of biological genetic evolution 
even if it's changed a little bit by something called epigenetic inheritance, but it's really slow. And it just sort of happens through, as you know, sur survival-based issues. So the way we also change is through something else that's equally real, only just very different. It's called cultural evolution. So what we're going to talk about this afternoon is the notion that you can actually intentionally nudge the evolution of culture, the way we communicate with each other, with the opening of awareness. So Shauna beautifully talked about mindfulness and the notion that it has this kind and compassionate attitude, this attitude of love, that it has this notion of intentionality to it, that a directionality to it, and attention. Um, and all of those contribute to what influences awareness, right? And we sometimes use the term mindful awareness. So blue mindfulness could also be called blue mindful awareness. So what is this awareness business? And that's what we've been talking about in um, indirect ways. Um, but it turns out that it may be that awareness is the key to cultivating cultural evolutionary changes in a positive direction to go away from the destructive directions that we've been in. And it needs to be done, as has been said, not out of fear, not out of guilt, not out of shame, but out of love. And that's what's so beautiful about having this Blue Mindfulness Summit is the idea that with Blue Mind, you get the notion of loving Earth, loving water, loving life, loving one another, and that this can be the driving force of awareness-based cultural evolution. And there's a personal implication and there's a public implication for what the mind is. What is the human mind? Because you can make an argument that it's the human mind that's destroying life on Earth. So to ask the question, what is it, is not just an academic issue. It's not just something that might be intellectually interesting, or if you're in mental health, of course, it's pressing because every field of mental health, psychiatry where I'm from, psychology where I'm trained, social work, you name it, none of them, none of us, have a definition of the mind. And so not having a definition of the mind, you're kind of groping in the dark as a mental health field. And the same is true with education. So environmental issues, if we say the mind is creating destruction of life on Earth, then it's helpful to talk about what is the mind. And then, of course, we can ask the question, once we say what the mind is, what is a healthy mind? And then we can ask the question, how do you cultivate a healthy mind so that you might have a chance of cultivating a healthy world? Does that make sense? Okay, so just so you know why we're about to go through this deep dive into these weirdly, what sound like abstract questions, but interestingly, even in the most abstract of fields, philosophy of mind, they don't say what the mind is. In fact, they say you should never answer any of these questions. <laughs> Seriously. I have good friends who are philosophers of mind. They say you're not supposed to ask, ask these questions, let alone answer them. So I just roll my eyes and I said, well, I understand that because once you use a word, you're wrong. Words are really limiting. So they say don't use words to name what it is because then you'll limit your understanding. So. The rest of this lecture will be in silence, <laughs> to be truly accurate. <laughs> but words are also liberating. I mean, they go both ways. So as long as you recognize a word is not the thing itself, but it actually can get us closer to what we need to do. Once you say what the, that we're willing to ask the question what the mind is, you get these other questions that turn out to be really, really 
intriguing and have everything to do with life on Earth and how humanity is destroying it. And that is, as we talked about last night, what is this thing called the self? And I made the weird suggestion that the way we define the self as something that happens in your body or even more limiting, what happens in your head is a presumed definition of self that is not only part of a much larger story I'll have you consider, but if you believe that, that yourself is only in your body or only in your head, it's actually a toxic lie that while you may think it's just a simple thing, it's actually making people depressed, anxious, suicidal, feel incredibly disconnected in the world, and feel like they can use the earth like a trash can. Right? And it relates to the issue of identity and belonging because those three things are f deeply interwoven. Um, and then we can ask the question, how and why do our relationships, not just with each other, but with water, why does a relationship with water influence our health the way Jay is so beautifully described? And what is our relationship with other people or even our inner experience, right? And so Shauna beautifully describes how you can change your relationality with things like pain. And so to answer some of those questions, we need to look into what consciousness is, which we're gonna dive into in a pretty wild way. So here's the weird idea. And this is from now 27 years of writing about this and teaching about it and getting a lot of um, pushback from mainstream academia. Uh, but nevertheless, trying to stick with this notion that if the mind is bigger than the body and broader than the brain, and the mind is deeply connected to our relationships with water and people, what could happen that streams inside your brain, because neuroscience is awesome, it's great, neuroplasticity is fantastic, important to know about, but it's part of a bigger story. It's an important part, but part of a bigger story. What could be shared with your relationships with water and what flows through your brain. Well, one way of saying it is it's energy flow. And I don't mean energy in some kind of loose kind of way of saying that. I mean literally in the scientific way you describe energy, like when we talked about a wave in the ocean. It's literally the kinetic pressure of water molecules on each other that gets a wave to flow, not the molecules themselves, but the energy called kinetic energy. Or the brain is a basically electrochemical energy transformation. And that's it. Why people in science, for the most part, don't talk about energy except physics is bizarre to me, and I don't really understand it, except one guy drinking a bit of wine, who's the chairman of a department, finally told me the answer. His parents didn't really respect him being a psychologist, and because there were some books that were published about energy in the mind back in the 60s, he thought his parents wouldn't like him if he used the energy idea. Unquote. <laughs> I offered him a few free sessions um, for therapy. But the issue is we have to move beyond whatever hesitancy we have is because it's a life and death issue. The energy flow that happens within us is happening in our body brain, you can use that, and between us and our relationships with people and the planet. So once you start talking like that in a scientifically grounded way, not in some loose way, but literally identifying the parts of energy, like electrical energy, chemical energy, sound energy, light energy. These are all things you can study in physics. Physics has no problem talking about energy. So what that guy said with the wine was, why would you ever bring physics into a discussion of the mind? And I said, why wouldn't you? In our field, interpersonal neurobiology, we combine all the sciences into one framework. 
So we take anthropology, sociology, linguistics, psychology, medicine in terms of part of biology, chemistry, physics and math, and we say if there's one reality, they all should be pointing in the similar direction using different tools. So we have a personal and a public or shared mind, an inner and an inter aspect of mind. And I know this is weird to talk like this and clunky, but once you get used to it, can you feel it happening in the betweenness? That's not just casual, oh, I'm imagining this. There's an intermind that's happening. And you know, we don't know yet exactly how to study it. So I'm working with two professors at MIT, Otto Scharmer and Peter Sange and others. And we're trying to study something we call generative social fields. And we think there's a social field, I think it's energy patterns, that soon we're gonna be able to actually measure and I think it's a measure of what's called integration, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. But I think you can identify when a, a field is generative, meaning it promotes connection, creativity, compassion, and a sense of really trust so that each of the differentiated members of that collective feel empowered with what's something you can call pervasive leadership to carry out this generative process. So some patterns of energy have symbolic value and we call that energy information, so it's information. So this water bottle was given to me by the headmaster of a school. He heard that my son Alex Siegel was, had come out with an album that was produced by the main singer that when that headmaster of that school was my son's headmaster when he was 14, he's the one who turned him onto that band. So that information within that energy across all those years created this incredible excitement for this headmaster. I just thought that because he gave me this water bottle and it just banged me in the head. So there you see this flow of information happening. But that's how we influence each other. You know, we, we, he, he had this profound influence on our son and sometimes energy goes through you just like a hose and you're a conduit. So when you go out in the water, you can just be with the flow of water on your skin, of water coming through your eyes, of the ripples of the waves that come at you, just feeling the sensation. Then you're like a conduit. But sometimes you construct things. Like if you say, I've got to save sea turtles. So there's nothing wrong with construction. But we have two forms of energy. One is pure energy, and that's dropping into sensation that drops us into the present moment. And other times we need to think creatively, right? And that's construction. So there's nothing wrong with one side or the other of this. They're both good, they're just very different. And a lot of people are lost in construction and haven't been taught to be mindfully aware of sensation, which is being a conduit. Now, one way to think about this then is that you are in a bath of energy flow. And the way that's very helpful in interpersonal neurobiology terms to think about this is that the embodied brain is a term we use for the flow that's inside your skin. So when we use the word inner or personal, we're just using a spatial reference because energy and information flow is not limited by skull or skin. Who you are, your identity, your belonging, yourself, is both inner, you do have a body, there is a body, and it's also inter. You are the sea turtle. You are the sea. You're the wind. And if we forget that, then we get lost in existential issues like, oh my God, what's the purpose of my life? I feel so disconnected. With you're right, there is not much of a purpose if you believe you're just living in this body and that's all it's there for. 
So we are shaped by these two big things, genetic evolution and cultural evolution. So part of it is you have a history that's particular to your particular um, culture that you were raised in. But the mind itself can be seen to have four facets, right? So you have the subjective experience of all that stuff we just said, and that's there. So, you know, the other day I had a really, really painful day. I had spent too much time reading the science of the environment. I spent too much time reading the news on politics. And I had this profound sense of despair and incredible hopelessness. So my subjective experience, the first facet of mine, was filled with just this sense of why go on living? This is like, this is not going to work out. Nothing we can do is going to change this. This is terrible. And consciousness, the second facet of mine, allowed me to be aware of this horrible, horrible feeling. Now, if I just identified with the hopelessness and I didn't have any social networks of support, I might have just ended my life. But because you could, I could distinguish awareness, that consciousness, from what I was aware of, it gives you a different relationality to that. And I could just say, oh yeah, there's the despair, there's the hopelessness, there's the hopelessness, there's the despair. And in all of that, you can turn the third facet, information processing, into something you can really understand in a deep way. For example, I could do an analysis of the last 10 days of all the things I had unfortunately read in the newspaper and how it just, what human beings do to human beings is just, oh my God, it's just ridiculous. So that information processing isn't always in consciousness. So you say, well, what is this system of mind? In mathematical terms, the kind of system that the mind is some part of is called a complex system. And that's basically, in mathematics, you study probability theory. In probability theory, you study systems theory. In systems theory, one kind of system that has characteristics of being open and being capable of being chaotic and also what's called nonlinear, which means small things lead to large results, those characteristics define what's called a complex system. Now, if you're a complex system in this universe, you have something called emergence, emergence. Now, emergence sounds like a California feel-good term, but it's actually a mathematical term. It means that stuff is interacting with itself within the system, and something is arising from that interaction that's much larger than the singular elements themselves. In complex systems, there are emergent properties. And so the notion is the complex system of energy flow that's both within your body and between your body and the world around you, people and the planet, is the system of the mind. And that these qualities of subjective experience, consciousness, and information processing may all be emergent properties of this relational and embodied flow. But one of those emergent properties that math tells us about has a particular quality that's fascinating, and that's this, that it's self-organization. So self-organization is a term that relates to the mathematics of complex systems, and it says that coming from the interaction of the elements of the system, so this is the emergent part, is something that's regulating its own becoming. And when I read that in 1992, I flipped out. Because whoever heard of such a thing? Something regulating its own becoming? 
So the proposal, it's a long story for a group I was running of 40 scientists who couldn't agree on what the mind was because no one had a definition of it, was this working definition of one facet of the mind, one core aspect, is the embodied and relational, self-organizing, emergent process that regulates the flow of energy and information. In this view, the mind is an emergent property. Maybe all the facets are emergent properties, but this one in particular is how you can answer the question, how in the world can something be both within your skin and case body and between your body and the stuff outside your body? This is how. Because energy and information flow is not limited by scholar skin, as we said, and what that means is that who you are is not defined by your scholar skin. It means that Blue Mind is identifying an incredibly important aspect of the fundamental system of who you are. And we don't usually think like that. Like if you hang out with neuroscientists like Shauna does and I do, you know, they'll say, oh, mind is brain activity. I mean, you know who said that first? Hippocrates, 2,500 years ago. And look where it's gotten us, you know? Or William James in 1890 repeated it again. And it's just not the whole story. And if you believe that is the whole story, it's not only gonna mislead you as to what human life is all about, it'll actually destroy the planet. So it isn't just an academic issue that we've been thinking this in modern medicine for 2,500 years. And when I went to medical school, nobody talked about the importance of relationality or the importance of subjective experience, like your emotions or the meaning of things. Nobody. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. That's a whole other story about medicine. But for the medicine for the planet, Blue Mind and Blue Mindfulness gives us this opportunity to say, the reason we need to connect people to nature, and one part of nature is water, is because who we are to be optimizing this self-organization is connecting ourselves to water. So this is the amazing thing when you ask the question from that definition, what optimizes self-organization? Math has an answer. It's the linkage of differentiated parts. Now, math doesn't have a name for it, so I told the mathematicians I was working with, I'm going to name that integration. They weren't so happy with that because they use that in a different way. In this way, we're going to use it, the word integration, is you have two processes, linking stuff that's differentiated. Differentiated means it's allowed to be different or specialized. Like in this group, we have 120 differentiated beings here, and we link together. So when you meet someone at dinner or in, or in the hot tubs or in the pool, you compassionately, respectfully realize the inner experience of the being in front of you can be differentiated. I'm doing everything I can to avoid the word self. You notice that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've used it until just now, have I? I'm trying my best. So this being in front of you has a differentiated personal experience, inner experience, than the inner experience happening in the body you were born into. Fine, that's the differentiated part. You're compassionately listening in a mindful way with all the three elements that Shauna so beautifully described. With intention, with an attitude of kindness, right? With a focused attention, right? So the broad awareness that you bring into it, we'll talk about in a moment. So this was amazing. And it turns out that when a system is integrated, it actually goes in a flow between chaos and rigidity. And that flow in the middle has these five qualities. Flexible, adaptive, coherent means resilient over time, energized and stable. 
I had noticed that the patients I was seeing in the 80s, every single one of the people I was seeing for therapy came with either chaos or rigidity. And I would say this to my supervisors and they would just shrug their shoulders and they go, I don't know what that means. So I looked in every field of science to see if I could find anywhere where it said that that was the case, which is that math says when a complex system is not optimally differentiating and linking, it goes either to chaos or rigidity. So if you had a choir singing, for example, and everybody sang the same note the same way for two or three hours, that would be rigidity. Uh, or if you had the choir you know, plugging their ears so they couldn't link and they belted out a song of their own choosing, it would be cacophony, it would be chaos. And when you allow them to sing together, 75% of the time when they do this in the United States, they sing Amazing Grace, which is thought to be the most harmonic song in the Western canon of, of songs. And that is what integration is. Integration is harmony. That is what health is based on. When we excessively differentiate ourselves from nature and don't link in a compassionate, respectful way, we're creating impaired integration on the planet. And everything you see in climate change, the chaos and rigidity you see in climate change can be explained by the massive impaired integration the human mind is creating on Earth. If it's true that like in psychotherapy, the way we as therapists help people change is with the process of consciousness, our clients have to be conscious. If you talk about parents, how does a parent help a child grow? The child has to be conscious, the parent has to be conscious. If you talk about a teacher in school, you know, the kids have got to be conscious, the teacher's got to be conscious. So that's just an interesting, what Wilson, E.O. Wilson would call concilian finding across different disciplines. Consciousness is an, an perhaps necessary, if not just important component of change. So if we're talking about cultural evolution, we're talking about how to harness consciousness to change the pathway of life on Earth. This is what we mean by awareness-based cultural evolution. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Lori Putnam, and Shannon Hudson. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and more. You can also find all of our podcasts archived at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors.